John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 734.PS9010, certificate number 48149, longitudinal film. I'm going to work in Woolworths. When I grow up, I want to be an astronaut. When I get married, I'd like to have two children. My heart's desire is to see my daddy. I don't want to answer that. Now, I presume we're speaking to some kind of future species that has no worries about aging. I think that's a safe assumption. I mean, it's taken us as a species a few thousand years, and we are, we've maybe pushed the envelope a couple decades just with penicillin and uh, hair implants. Right, but g- gene therapy and whatnot, I mean, I'm assuming that— It's got to be coming, right? Sure, the futurelings are made entirely out of genes. There are a hundred ways to do this, with cloning or, uh, you know, they could be robots— they could be, right. what's the animal that doesn't age? Portuguese man of war or lobster or something? Isn't there some animal that just lives forever unless... Yeah, lobsters live forever. Is that true? I think that's common knowledge. Unless you put them in a bisque? Um, right, yeah. The only thing that can kill a lobster is a pot. It's a, a pot of is, is an water. old man from Maine. Or another lobster. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like diamonds. Nothing can scratch a lobster except another lobster. But, uh, but Maybe he, that's why nature made lobsters so delicious. So Just so they would have... To, to control keep, the population. Yeah, otherwise there would just be... Billions of immortal lobsters. I see. <laughs> I do feel like probably the majority of our listeners are some kind of AI. And in fact, maybe it's just AIs based on you and me. <laughs> there. So there may be like a billion different... We d- recorded enough of these that the show became sentient. The show became sentient, right. And so they're like they're like billions of you and me, but separated by just minor sort of... Uh, Random errors. Every time they meet on the street, the little ro- the John robots and the Ken robots meet on the street, it's a 58-minute conversation <laughs> with a mattress ad in the middle, and then they go their way. Uh, but, but we, but you know, so they, the, our future audience will, have to, will not be able to appreciate how central aging and the transitoriness, the ephemerality of everything is to the human outlook and spirit in our time. It's really all we think about. It's a hundred percent of what, when are you most aware of aging? Are there things that happen during the day that make you, cause on the inside, how, how old do you think you are? Oh, my internal age. Yeah. I feel like I'm 29. I just assume I'm 29 and then it takes me a second to realize that's, you know, almost two decades off. Things, uh, things were going great for me at 29, but I still didn't realize 
things were going great. And I think the problem, the problem is that if I could go back to being 29 with the wisdom I had at 38, I think I would like to be 29. But I didn't really come into wisdom of any kind as regards myself until I was in my I like that you want to be your wisest age late 30s. and not just your, your your the age when you could do the most pull-ups. Yeah, the problem the problem with me in my 20s is that I was a I was awful. I mean, not just awful in the world, but also awful to myself. So I didn't enjoy it even when I was sitting on top of the sitting on top of the 20s heap. There's a there's a funny Mark Twain short story called Captain Stormfield Visits Heaven where uh, we find out that everybody in heaven is actually old. They have they have not. Dis- you can be any age you want, but they have all chosen to be old. Everybody gets there and tries to be a young, uh, you know, a, a young, vibrant person again, and they quickly tire of it because you can't go from being a, you know, the seventy-year-old who died on Earth. You, you it turns out you realize you're annoyed by that. You don't want that again. Yeah. So everybody gradually ages up, and they finally just wind up at the age they died at because. <laughs> so heaven's just full of old men sitting around yeah. barrels at general stores. Yeah, and and, uh, and old women just wishing that the old men would get out of the house for a while. Yeah, leave so, them alone. So maybe that's true. Maybe, uh, but I but I feel like in my dream. How old are you in your dreams? Oh, I'm I'm always young in my dreams. Yeah, I don't know. I'm pro- in my dreams. I'm probably. Well, in my dreams, I'm like nine. Yeah, exactly. On some level, my brain does not know I'm middle-aged because all my dreams are in high school or my grandma's house when I was a kid. But I do – physically, there was a sweet spot for me where I had most of my capabilities. The problem was that because I was a a drinker and a drug user in my youth, I I, I beat up my body. Like the last time that my body was not – trashed uh, was I was 19 and from 19 to 26 I sustained so many lasting injuries that if I if I go back to any time after 25 or 26 I still have to deal with the fact that I'm all messed up right my like my knee and my hands and my teeth and my head are all um, crisscrossed with battle wounds but people don't know you're a you're Good a people. you're a near perfect physical specimen oh, at, sure. at at fifty. You are for sure. You're, yeah. you're getting better with age yeah. in a, in a way that society and possibly genetics only allows certain men to do. In our <laughs> given our awful, I think I think patriarchy. as I get older, I do get more attractive by the by the world standards to yourself. Uh, I but not to myself. I mean, oh, really? hopefully. I am personality-wise more attractive. You like, but you like to post goofy pictures of you back in the day with goofier glasses. Yeah, but that, that all that is that kind of strange low self-esteem, self-effacement where it's like, look at me, and you know, and you hope desperately that people are like, you were cute, <laughs> but most of the people are like, your face is weird. <laughs> going, oh, yeah, at some point you need to give up on that point. <laughs> It'll work this time. That thing on, you said on the podcast where you said your face is weird, you were right. <laughs> now, oh. now you're gonna. Think of the outpouring of goodwill you're going to get now. I know. From all eras of, I know. of uh, I am existence. not fishing for compliments, honestly. He please, is absolutely fishing for please compliments. Please do not compliment and me. And lobsters. Unless, of course, you know, you want to go out on a date with me, and in which case, please submit your application this is to, what the show is to for now? Ken Jennings. <laughs> Just send an email. Ken will read it, and he'll decide whether you seem uh, seem like a good match I've me. decided I want you to settle down, and this is now what the show is all you're about. You're going to be the Yenta of, of my future. Yes. Yeah. And you're going to be the, the 
Yentl. The, I'm going to be the Yentl. We're going to find you, you your Mandy Patinkin, John. <laughs> oh, he was so cute then. So, so when are you, so during the day, when do things happen that make you feel older? Like, oh, I, yeah. like I no longer, when I'm with my kids, I no longer like prance the way hmm. I once could. Really? I used to prance. Yeah, of course you did. Not in a, not in a gay way. No, there's, but just but like in a, if there's, a, if there's a railing or a rockery, I would hop on up it. Sure. In an elfin way. Why not? Prance. Why? No. Why, if there's a rockery there and nobody's walking on it. Get up there. What a waste of a rockery. Get up on that rockery. And today I do the same thing, and then I'm like, oh, oh hey, I, my knees don't do that. I mean, honestly, without getting into too much detail, when when I used to sit with my dad and his 80-year-old uh, cohort and listen to them try and argue about who did more heavy lifting in World War II, um, <laughs> one of the popular topics of conversation among guys that age is their prostates. They all have something to say about their prostate. And they'll talk, they would talk for hours about them. What do you want? A, a, a big one? A small one? I think you want a small one. And I would sit at the table and... and That's a nice twist in, in when it comes to yeah, right? male genitalia. <laughs> and I would say after a while, like, you guys, like, come on. Can we talk about something else? Let's go back to arguing about World War II. Like, this is so boring. And they would turn, like, angry and go, you have no idea. One day, your prostate will be all you think about. And I, you know, I'd blow them off, scoff at them. And then uh, one day I was like, what? what is wrong with me? And it was, it was that my prostate was now bigger than it used to be. And it's such a pain in the neck. It's such a pain in the Not prostate. The neck. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and, uh, and so that's the thing I think that most commonly reminds me that I'm, uh, Something's happened. That and the at, fact I can't see anymore. Yeah, that's true. I am – so I'm not quite – I am – yeah, I definitely noticed that um, – You're I'm, five years younger than me. I'm not – but I'm not knocking out the back of the urinal anymore, John. Right. And I got to say I noticed it watching myself on uh, on TV recently. That's a common problem I that people have. Well, it's not, but you do, people don't know how traumatic it is. Oh, to see yourself. They're showing clips of me on Jeopardy when I'm 29, and then you cut back to me – and I look puffy and I've got bags under my eyes. And, yeah, but at 29, uh, you wore those suits that were made out of uh, what seems to be like made out of moss and tofu or whatever. Like those suits were not. What does JCPenney's make those? It's some kind of um, oiled paper. Yeah. Some kind of, some kind of waxed paper, I think, that's yeah. slightly rainproof. They were all the color of toilet scum and your ties were weird. And now you're like a really good dresser. I thought you were you were. You were as sharp as a tack. Did you know they sent they sent Alex's wardrobe guy up to Seattle, and we went to Nordstrom together? No, really? Uh, yeah, and he he pulled stuff for me. Why didn't they do that with James? <laughs> or, or did they? They they just they did. They went to the sporting goods store and- for for buzzer ergonomic reasons. He does not want to wear a jacket. He wants to wear something loose and comfy, and so they bought him an array of very nice cashmere V necks. Oh, too bad it didn't help him. <laughs> Yeah, that's why. If he'd worn a, if he had shown some proper respect to that's Mr. Right. Trebek and worn a jacket, we don't even know how far that guy could have gone. You know, the thing is he, that that's the, not his final form. The tie, uh, a, a tight tie around your neck, actually keeps more blood in your brain for longer because it, it can't go back. It keeps wrong answers out of your mouth. <laughs> that's right. I was about to say keeps them down in your spleen. I was about to say the capital of Tanzania was Dar es Salaam, and it couldn't get out. It's it's Dodona now. Uh, but so, so I had that experience of, and people would on the internet would be like, this guy doesn't age. And I'm like, oh no, honey. I, you see it, huh? I, I'm, I'm puff, so puffy right now. Uh, we but, could, we could both be less puffy, you and I. 
it really, so I immediately started losing weight. Like nothing had motivated me for years to eat healthier and being on a game show for a week has changed my approach to life. What are your stratagem? Um, Losing weights. Because you're, I mean, I, uh, without giving away too much, a, uh, a, a prominent member of your family, uh, one of the, one, I would say one of the key members of your, your family, immediate family, uh, has, uh, has undergone a, a real transformation in the last several months. I am trying to do the same thing. I'm trying to like have no sugar, no flour, uh, 16 hour fast every day. Right. So like you don't, you eat dinner and then you don't eat again until mid morning. It's, it's that's very the, doable. That's the Adam Savage mo- model. Is that true? Is that what he, he does? He, he, for a long time, I think maybe still, uh, would not eat before sundown. But all that is all that presumes that you wake up Muslim. in the morning. Is Adam Savage Muslim? No. Oh, right. He's living in a state of permanent Ramadan. Permanent Ramadan. That's his. That's his new. Uh... Permanent Ramadan is a killer. Yeah. Band well, there's name. a there's an album title. Are you gonna write that down? The problem is that would work in the '80s, but you couldn't have. I couldn't have an album called Permanent Ramadan. Well, you don't want to have a cartoon of Muhammad on the cover of it. No. Uh, and it, the main thing is, I don't believe it's clearing toxins out of me to fast every day, but it's definitely. Um, I don't, I don't know if it's getting me closer to God, but it just keeps me from snacking before I go to bed. It doesn't work for me because I will eat 16,000 calories worth of ice cream at one o'clock in the morning and then go immediately to bed. Not, a, not if you're doing this. Not if, you, not if Adam Savage has come to you in a dream glowing. One o'clock in the morning is after dark. No. It's before dawn. Just 16 hours of no eating. Oh, I see. Like if you eat dinner at six, you cannot eat again until 10 a.m. That's super easy. I'll eat 16,000 calories of ice cream at 1 a.m. and then I won't eat until... 6 p.m. The first time I tried this, I did find that I was just, it just made me much more efficient. I was like, hell, I can eat 2,500 calories in eight hours. Watch me. Like, I took it as a challenge. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing about the pa- the passage of time and watching yourself age is, um, well, two things. One is that you're not aware of it. it, it ha- as it happens. As it happens. It's so gradual. There's a thing in, um, I think it's something Thomas Mann says in Death in Venice about how an hourglass appears to not be draining at all at the beginning. Mm. You know, right. you see the sand coming out, you know, time is passing, but that seems to be at the same level. The top is just flat. Right. And then that's true until, until the very end. And then you turn into a, a <laughs> vortex of, you know, an inescapable vortex of, of time grabs you and age grabs you. The, the most graphic, uh, like example of this for me was when my daughter was born, my beard was brown. Um, my mustache has always been blonde and I had a little bit of blonde around my chin but it was dark brown beard and um from the and my daughter's 8 now and in the last 8 years uh if you look at pictures of me you just see the white coming into my beard and now my beard is almost entirely white let me get this straight you are blaming this on the stress of that your daughter has introduced to your life i don't think so but it just but it coincides right yeah. i mean like and and this That's is just 8 years yeah. this is 8 years but it's 8 years between the age of 41 and or you know eight, 10 years between uh, 40 I guess I was 43 when she was born. But um but the uh, the degree to which my whitening beard has aged me because now people all routinely uh, ask my daughter like are you out for a walk with granddad? And I'm like <laughs> you villains and it's typically older guys that say that. No woman has ever said that. It's always some guy that's, you know, 15 years older than me. Well that's a that's a silver lining for you. To, you know, to the women, you still have a youthful twinkle in your eye, apparently. I, I guess, but but it absolutely is true. If I see a picture of me or catch a catch a glimpse in a mirror, I'm like, oh, look at Chris Kringle here. And it's not, I don't even have red in my beard anymore. 
The other thing about the passage of time, in addition to its terrifying suddenness, is that um, art has never been able to depict it really. Like for centuries, the passage of time has been one of the chief concerns of human experience. And But how do you paint it? How do you write a concerto about it? Even big, sprawling family novels, you know, that really that's what attempts it is, right. you know, the Forsyth saga or right. War and Peace, War, you know, yeah, right. some book where literally decades go by. And you do often, you'll finish a novel like that and you will kind of feel like you have understood everything from Kunta Kinte up to Alex Haley. And, you know, you'll feel like time has passed, but really not. Like in, a, in another way, you know, I just read that all on the same airplane flight. You know, like we, we love our sagas, right? Our Star Warses and our Harry Potters, where, where we watch characters age. But and you know, Star Wars has been coming out now for forty years. Harry Potter and Star Wars are interesting cases because we have experienced them. You know, kids grew up with Harry, Harry Potter aging roughly the same age as him. Um, but what's the? Uh, is there any equivalent to that in the? You know, to the to a tenth century Norseman. Like, I mean, you could have a concerto where the organ plays a single note for 15 years. Really? That's it. John Cage playing very slowly. That's about the only way that, um, that music, for example, would help us understand the gradual change and in some ways decline that is aging. You know, in, in painting, they would often, really all they would do is they'd do a still life, but they'd put a skull in it. Right. And that's it. They'd be like, hey, we're painting fruit and stuff, but guess what? Here's a skull, suckers. I mean, like, I, that's coming, but you, that's all you could do. W- one thing that happens is landscape architecture, landscape Ooh, gardening. That's a great point. Right? Like if you were building an English garden uh, around a manor house, it's only going to come to fruition after 40 years or something, right? And Well, it'll come to fruition sooner, but... <laughs> right. But, but, it w- but the whole design only yes. matures. You only and, get the trees the right height. And it's really the gardens that your grandfather planted that that are fully realized so I could see, I mean, if you if you travel in the English countryside, you become so aware of it being just a master work of a of a whole people's. But I wonder if the rich guy commissioning that would all would often, you know, he doesn't want to leave it to his grandkids to see the vision. Right. He's gonna want full size trees trucked in from somewhere, right? I guess the Sagrada Familia, Familia there is you an go. example. Yeah. Right? Architecture that <laughs> un, that'll never be finished. <laughs> the uh in our age, you know, we've really kind of finally developed an art form that will grapple with this, you know, need to understand our own, our own aging and our own changing. Um, Instagram. I call it Instagram. (laughs) People do this at home now. People will take a picture of themselves every day for 10 years and suddenly you have a record of them online. This is something I thought about doing as a kid. I remember, you know, I'd look at my yearly Sears portrait studio photo and I would be like, I want to see it like, age in real time, like right. uh, like a Twilight Zone episode. There was an app for this. Uh, I've, I'm sure there are 50 apps for it now, but I started yeah. doing it in 2014, taking a picture of myself every day in the same location, which was I would go for a walk out to Seward Park and get out there on the on the, uh, on the the beach. Every the, day? The, every day. You, don't live, you didn't live that close to the beach I didn't, Seward I, Park. Th- because this was part of a whole project of like, I'm going to lose weight and exercise and stop, you know, and my, shrink my prostate. Through exposure to UV rays. I went out on the beach at Seward Park and would massage my prostate every day. <laughs> every day until, until arrested. I got arrested. Uh, but I took my picture every day for, you know, 10 days or two weeks. And then I, I was like, boy, it's sure rainy out. I think I'll skip today. And I never went back. <laughs> One day. That's what's going to happen to my no sugar, no flour thing for sure. 
Um, but yeah, so this, the, uh, the ability of video of, um, you know, video photograph photography, and then video moving photography has really given us the chance to, uh, to consider this in a way we never have before. Um, in 1955, uh, you know, the BBC had been a radio and then television monopoly, a semi-official, semi, kind of a government organ for for British subjects for many decades. And in 1955, ITV came on the air. You know, finally a competitor to BBC. The uh, ITV franchisee in Northern England was Granada Television, still to this day one of the you know, some mainstay and powerhouse of, of British TV. I never understood how it was called Granada. But given it's in that, Manchester? Yeah, given that that's a, a, a town in Spain. I feel like Granada should have a local public TV station called Manchester. Yeah, Manchester TV. And that's where they watch, uh, you know, Doctor Who. What does I in ITV stand for? Independent, I think. Oh, independent I, I TV. Because that is the idea. Like, why is there a state TV organ? Sure. We should be able to watch our gardening shows and news in Welsh and, uh, you know. News in Welsh, that's a great title of, for an album. <laughs> I'm gonna, I will use that. And cheap-looking sci-fi. Like, we should have that on multiple channels. And not just BBC One through Four. I mean, there, and so, and it really caused both stations to up their game. You know, right. British TV got a lot better once uh, somebody besides the home secretary was, was running it. <laughs> but uh, one of the early hits, so this was based in Manchester, so it was kind of away from the London culture, and they were able to do different and more exciting things. One of the, they had a documentary program called World in Action, series of kind of interesting documentaries about Britain today. Yeah, exactly. It's actually got this kind of, um, I've heard this theme many times, this kind of weirdly ominous, thunderous, it sounds like the, the music from The Prisoner, kind of. Uh-huh. Dun, 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 you know? World in action. You're going to be very interested in uh, the price of British cotton if you hear the dun, 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 dun <laughs> at the beginning. And uh, one of their staffers was actually a Canadian filmmaker named Paul Almond, who was interested in what he claimed, and I think this is true, to be a Jesuit maxim. You would know. You're the show's resident sure. Jesuit expert. Right. Je- Jesuit affiliate. Yeah. Give. Uh, he was fascinated with something that he had once heard from the Jesuits. Give me a child until he is seven, and I will show you the man. Mm-hmm. Basically, or, you know, the person, although, as we'll see, this was a more sexist time. And I don't know, do you believe in this? Do you believe in this idea that we are essentially fully formed by the time our childhood is in, in full blossom? Well, you know, when we were younger, it was very, um, it was very common and it was a, it was a, a familiar and, um, uh, a familiar topic for argument, uh, whether nature or nurture played a larger role in the, in the, the development of a person. But you could go either way and still say the, the child is fully formed. You know, the most formative years are, are before seven. Right. So and have nature and nurture already done their work? The, the, the thing is, having reflected on this for a long time, and, and having a child, of course, you're, you're, you become aware of how much nature plays a role in who a person is. I'll tell you what, having two children... <laughs> Is what teaches you that. Is that right? Because you're like, I did the same thing and none of this stuff works on her. <laughs> she came out of the tap totally different temperature. Yeah, my daughter walked into the world and I was like, who do you think you are? Yeah. And she was six months old, you know. Um, but when I when you talk to other adult humans and you ask them what their what the what really was formative, we all spend a little bit of time saying, like, oh, when I was seven, you know, somebody gave me Spoiled milk in my Kool-Aid or whatever. Don't put milk in Kool-Aid is the lesson there. But really what makes you into an adult person is what happens between seventh grade and your senior year in high school, right? I mean, that's where 
you learn all the hard stuff about being a human. And you walk in, everybody walks into seventh grade, you know, with, with whatever damage, but depending but on that's how, where the trauma actually comes. Yeah, but depending on how school. you feel middle school and those early years of high school. A lot of it's probably biological, the changes you're going through. Right. Like you've kind of gone from generic kid to untapping whatever hormones are going to do to you. And your emotions come online. Right. But I feel like what the Jesuits were saying is, like, I think both you and I probably avoided a lot of... Jesuits? Uh, I didn't. No, you probably <laughs> until did. You were seven, we, <laughs> until we were seven, we both did a great, 100% Jesuit avoidance. But when we hit seventh grade, both of us had a moral uh, foundation taught to us by our parents Good and parents, communities. Yeah. So that those initial temptations of like, hey, John, you know, come on up behind the dumpster and let's huff some gas. I was... I was I had a foundation enough to say like no thank you I choose to so I choose to study that that tailed off at some point for you at some point it did but I think you know I didn't first smoke marijuana until I was uh well probably 17 because up until that point I still had that foundation that was telling me like, you're not a drug user. But doesn't that mean you were the, so you were the teen that you were when you were seven, like your parents had created just say no, John, except that when I finally did smoke pot, it was because of what had happened to me between the ages of 13 and 17. And, um, and I think, you know, I think having, having gone the direction I did is, is entirely a product, not of what, you know, the neglect I experienced as a seven year old, it was a product of the the peer relationships I had and the way that I was perceiving the world. You know who doesn't like to hear that? Teen. Parents. Well, right, and Jesuits. <laughs> well, <laughs> Jesuits hate it. <laughs> Jesuits hate him. Because that is the one weird trick that parents don't like to know about, that you can do whatever you want, but it's really going to be what happens to your childhood when body chemistry and brain chemistry change and they're suddenly surrounded by influential peers. Right, you can give them a book that's all about like healthy sexual relationships and your and loving your body. But if you go to junior high and your and your best friend is like your butt is fat, you need to start puking. And uh you're going to suddenly who like, are you going to listen to? It doesn't matter like that for <laughs> a decade mom and dad gave you good advice, fed and clothed you, everything was going great. Suddenly, you know, if you like Susan's hair right. and she's being mean, that will destroy your life. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I can't give, I couldn't get my kids to read anything anymore because no matter w- what kind of home I thought I was raising them in, what do you phones think? got invented and then my, you know, I can't get my kids to read a book now. I lost them. What was your most disastrous peer relationship when you were a teen? Who did you the worst or the, the most disservice? I feel like I may have escaped unscathed. Like no I, one did. No one gave you a complex of any kind. I really, I have almost none of that. Like I had people who I thought, you know, you know, I had the typical kind of childhood and early adolescent trauma of somebody I thought was a close friend, and then suddenly they wouldn't even right. give me the time of day. They, and they were they, someone they, else's. They friend. were hanging out with yeah, right, with Eric instead. Boo. Boo. Um, so Eric had moon boots. So some of that, but I feel like nobody was really bullying me, making me feel awful about myself. Like I was the, I was in charge of that. Right. I was like, Ken, you're, you're a weird kid. And when you're a kid, you're blissfully weird. And then you're, when you're a teen, you're self-consciously cripplingly weird. 
But did you feel like an outsider? Yeah. Did you? Uh, so, yeah. so at some point, I, I there did it to was, myself. Nobody right. did it. I was. But I'm there was. A, you did. You did go into a period where you were like, "I'm excluded," but you embraced it. You dove deeper into it. Like, no, I just went in the closet about it. Right. it. It wasn't until later in life that I was like, "Oh, actually, you know, if you're into trivia, you know, so like, so, so my, so <laughs> look, my, you just you." that word on the floor like my give me a child until he is seven is like i think of myself as a kid just being addicted to game shows and like keeping i've said this on the show keeping notebooks full of uh, family feud boards and stuff right you were an 80 year old (laughs) right (laughs) but that that's the imprint of my whole life like the jesuits were right about me like my job turned out to be game show guy (laughs) and when i was an adolescent i was kind of in the closet about being that kind of a weird brain it's not a great look on a 16 year old no if you want to date you right. don't want to show your the girl your family feud notebooks let's go down to the let's go down to the lookout point you're like well, well can we let's hide under actually, the bleachers and hundred thousand dollar pyramid is on <laughs> <laughs> so but at some point i came out of it like i think you know you did although maybe on a different timeline and I, I feel like in my case what reasserted itself was just the basic elements of me at, at seven right okay and I guess that's true of me too, right? I mean, I, I still have that grounding. Even in my worst drug days, I had pretty strong, a, a code, right? A strong code. Yeah. Like I wouldn't steal, I wouldn't deal. You know, I had, although I was a user, right? I had all these, uh, I had all these borders that somehow I maintained through, you know, through periods where it was like, are you sure you don't steal? Because stealing right now would that would really would, help. It would really help you, even if you even if you bent that rule a little bit. And I was like, I don't steal, it. and um, and I don't know how how you would get that uh, how, that rebar in your life in any way other than in those first seven years. I mean, at some point, it's all it's all related to how we all turn into mom or dad. I guess you know is one of the things that kind of reasserts that your core seven-year-old character is the fact that as you age, I don't even know if it's genetics or if it's just how you have, you saw adulthood modeled different periods of life modeled. Like everybody turns into their My parents, parents didn't steal. Way. See one thing, one thing about your mom is she never right. shoplifted to nope. buy crack. My dad also did not steal. I don't know. I can't account for it. Maybe that's what they <laughs> saw. They saw in each other. Oh, for two <laughs> common interests include not, Jacking cars. How do you feel about stealing? Not into it. Great. Uh, so, um, so given that maxim, Paul Almond, this Canadian guy, thought, what a perfect premise for a documentary. You know, mm-hmm. let's. Um, he had done some math and realized that uh, in film stock was cheap enough that <laughs> <laughs> right, sixteen millimeter black and white stock. No, in 1964, he realized the 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 British uh, the you know the. Society of Tomorrow, the adult society of tomorrow had already been born mm-hmm. and were in primary school. You know, as, as, as he said in his documentary, the executive and the shop steward of the year 2000 hmm. are now seven years old. Right. So he thought, if I interview... He believed the children were his future. <laughs> exactly. In a literal way. And he wanted... So he, he thought, if I interview a bunch of seven-year-olds, this will be a look at what Britain will be like in the year 2000. Now, this is... If the Jesuits are right. So I guess he thought, and if it, that's only true if it, really this was kind of a smokescreen for his real interest, which was the British class system right. of the mid 20th century. Did he predict that everyone would vote Tory and that, did he predict Brexit? Because if he did. <laughs> he, uh, well, he wanted to talk to a broad variety of kids. Oh, right. And that includes 
upper class public school twits with Tory parents mm-hmm. and, you know, cheeky East London Cockney kids. This is your, this is his idea of diversity in, sure. in 1964. <laughs> sure. Of the 14 kids interviewed, only four are women. Right. And because, they're all white. Yeah. They're yeah. all, there's actually one biracial kid from a children's home. <laughs> like he went to an orphanage to find a black kid. <laughs> and there's, the weird thing is there's only four girls and, uh, Really, it's because he thought he he wanted to deal with the yes, the future ruling class, the workers of tomorrow, the occupations of tomorrow, and that's not going to be served by talking to four moms. Just be four housewives. He was behind the behind the the curve in 1964, Um, and so he didn't he didn't predict. Margaret Thatcher. Even in 1964, <laughs> he had not predicted any element of the sexual revolution, which maybe right. in 1964 you should have been able to do. I mean, Beatlemania he, should have told you. Sure, Princess Anne. Exactly. Right. I mean, <laughs> she was she was moving the ball when Princess Anne was not allowed to marry that Air Force guy. That was it. That was oh no, the wait, that's point. Margaret. When Margaret. Oh no, was I'm not sorry. A, that's right. Prince wait, of are Margaret. Are you thinking of Margaret? I was okay. thinking of Margaret too. When Margaret's not allowed to marry the Air Force guy, he was like, "See, I don't need women on this show." Yeah. Uh, the uh, he left the recruiting of the children up to a staff, which included kind of a young, bright, ambitious Cambridge man, uh, Cambridge grad named Michael Apted. But that's that's the best part about this story is that he had even even this little upstart uh, right. like project had like a staff. No shortage. Of, <laughs> it's really well made. So I've seen this documentary several times, and I've seen clips from it. Dozens and dozens of times, and I'll explain why. Um, it's a really well-made little documentary where they uh, interview all these kids separately. They go all over Britain, you know, uh, again, orphans in London at children's homes, cheeky uh, but but poor East London boys and girls. How many kids? Public school twits, 14 kids. Uh-huh. Um, he goes up to the Yorkshire Dales. He goes out to the countryside. Um, the idea is to get a cross-section of Britain, and and he just asks them, you know, what, what they want to be when they grow up. You know, how do they see the Britain of their future and asks them what they want to do for a living. And the kids have been chosen by this Michael Apted guy and others just, and apparently with in conjunction with the school. So schools were approached and offered their best and brightest. So you get these impossibly funny, charismatic, smart kids. Right. Cause you know, I'm sure the vast majority of British children at 64 were as just as dull witted as, as uh, lurpy yeah. as, <laughs> As all your kids' friends today. It was just like the way they cast uh, the film Bugsy Malone. They exactly. Just, they went around England and were like, who's the who's the cutest kid in your school? You might as well be going to one of those awful children beauty pageants. Because right. um, they get these amazing bright-eyed kids. And uh, and they ask them what they want to do when they grow up. And they get funny answers. You know, one kid, one girl, the girl from East London says, I want to work in a Woolworths. And this little boy says, I would like to be an astronaut. But if I can't be an astronaut, I would be a coach driver. Yeah, and uh, it's a version of the same thing. This smart kid from this tiny Yorkshire farm says, uh, I'd like to learn all about the moon and all that. <laughs> uh, maybe the, the, the best are probably the most the best interviews are probably with this um, this cheeky. I've said the word cheeky a million times. You have. Because it's, it's, no, it's London in 1964. Sure, there's no other way to describe Everybody's the, the, cheeky. the little urchins. This precocious little uh, small little... Um, ball of energy, the seven-year-old named Tony from East London. Covered in coal dust, presumably. <laughs> he wants to be a jockey. Yeah, jockey. I want to be a jockey. Yeah, jockey. He's um, he's always dreamed of, and he's small, so it's perfect. And you see this kid, you know, just roughhousing and right. swinging punches. And he's asked, is it, no, he, you ask him a question, like, he, he's just a soundbite machine. Is it important to fight? 
Yes. <laughs> they ask him about Paul. You hear this Canadian accented voice asking about the class system, and uh, you hear Tony be like, you know, just rail about the poshies. He hates yeah, the poshies. Sure, of course he does because he's uh, a pickpocket. Oh yes, yeah, exactly. He needs to go pick their pockets and give it to Fagan. He does impressions of rich kids. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. You know, and then he he mimics that's, just that's all rich kids say. He mimics just smashing them. Pow, you know. Uh, and then he also interviews a, uh, a trio of public school boys who we see singing Waltzing Matilda in Latin. <laughs> These, future prime ministers all. Exactly. And they know it. He asks them what the future holds, and they know exactly. They're going to go to St. Whatever's, and then it's on to Oxford, and they know where they're going to be at Oxford, and they know what they're going to study. And some of the kids forget their lines. Clearly... This is something that's been told to them by their own fathers. Yeah, um, but these kids are just a delight, even though they're they're the future twits of the future Mister Beans of England. Um, right, because children are charming. Yes, children, and, and even when they're unlikable, you know, I read the Financial Times, says one of these seven year olds, <laughs> and the other one says, I read the Observer and the Times, and then the third one jumps in and says, What do you like about it? And he says, Well, I read the headlines, and then I read about them. About it. <laughs> and some other kid talks about how he likes to look at his shares. He looks at his shares every morning in right. the Financial Times. And the other kid says, yes, because you're a miser. And it's no problem to get these kids to say the most awful classist things about how, uh, of course, school shouldn't have to admit the poor, because then the poor people would come rushing in. And, and how would sir pay the masters? <laughs> so these kids are just a, a fountain of kind sure, of... Sure, God bless them. You know, 1920s or you know, 1890s sounding E.M. Forster kind of rich kid dialogue. It's beautiful. It has not aged a day. So it's it's an amazing little documentary. He gets them all together. They they go to they all have a day out in London where you hear them. All 14 kids? All 14 kids. Mixing. So does, does Tony bash any of the poshies? You actually see, uh, they go to the zoo, and one of the poor kids, I think, is throwing popcorn to the polar bear, and the public school kids are just outraged. You Stop that at once! You know, because <laughs> there's a sign, you know? He's not going to let these ruffians throw popcorn to the polar bear. You see them dancing to some kind of um, uh, Beatles-alike kind of Merseyside sound. Right. And uh, they all go to, at the end of our very special day in London, we took the children all to an adventure playground. And you see them kind of running around in what looks like the ru- the rubble of the Blitz. Sure, totally dangerous. Uh... <laughs> the, the world's most dangerous <laughs> playground. Exposed nails. 50-gallon drum with a fire in exactly. it. Exactly. And they kind of try to predict uh, what's going to happen, like the... The boys from the children's home start playing, start building a house. Like, oh, these kids don't have a house. Oh, so they're doing the sociologist thing. They're- yeah, the narrator is a sociologist. Oh, so so it's a little bit of a little bit of a cultural anthropology happening. Exactly. Um, Notices this child whose parents are were laborers as he immediately starts to build. And this this Paul Allman guy coming from Canada is you know criticizing you know there's an implicit critique of the British class system right that you know this no matter how you know this kid doesn't think he has any possibilities this little girl seems so bright and smart but she all she can think of is she wants to work in a Woolworths right whereas these three kids have their futures all mapped and there was no thought that they would uh, that this would be any more than a, a one-off documentary but seven years later in the early 70s Michael Apted uh, the, the had you know started to become a very uh, has started to become a, a talented and important documentarian he decided he would catch up with all these kids and see what they were up to. The, the movie was called Seven Up. Have you ever seen That's any clever. any of the yes the 
the soft drink. These yes. kids are seven, but they're aging up. Have you seen any of the the work on these kids, the documentaries? So the the up series of films it turns uh, into a series has uh, has always appealed to me. I've read a lot of critical talking around them, but um, I have been extremely shy about watching any of the films. And I've seen clips, as you as you said, I've seen clips many times of these lovable kids, and then as they become, you know, older people. Why, why do you not want to watch? I can't account for it. I know that uh, I know that one came out recently. Mm-hmm. This uh, is last year, and. Uh, and I remember over the, over the course of my own life, every seven years, kind of like a cicada, these films reappear, <laughs> right. and I'm like, oh, those films, right? And I've, and I've meant to sit down and watch them all. Does it feel like homework now that you've missed 50, 60 years of them? Or? No, you know, what it was was the first time I heard of it, which probably, what, would have been the third iteration? 21 of f- 28 Up were got international release and were champions, especially 28 Up. Yeah. Got, so, and 35 Up got a lot of international acclaim, Ebert referred to them as one of the 10 greatest films ever made. So when 28 Up came out, I was, what year would it, would it have been? I would have been. That would be 21 years after 64, so mid-80s. Right, so I would have been a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I think at that point. We're I was, both a little younger than this cohort. Yeah, I, I would have been, I was, I was so burned out on, uh, on boomer self-celebration that I was like, <laughs> I can't just watch another thing about them. And then as, as, it, as time went on... You, you would just watch Family Ties if you wanted that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, or, you know, like, if I want Boomer self-celebration, I'll watch Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> but, it, but then as, you know, as their problems started to kind of uh, presage mine mm-hmm. a little bit, like, oh, boy, they're 35 now, and here I am at, at the ripe old age of 25. And um, then it was like, I don't want to know. It felt a little bit like, I don't want to look into the future. I don't want to see a bunch of kids that used to be gifted and now are just troubled. There is some, yeah, you cannot watch the show without thinking about your own life, right? your own choices, maybe your kids' lives as well, your own choices of those times, I didn't your want own that. mortality. I still don't. Like when it came out most recently and, and so much of the writing about it was like, oh, isn't it a pity that little Billy who showed so much promise is now, you know, just like such a sad, broken Man, I was like, please, please don't make me see that. We, yeah, and you got to admit that a lot of the appeal of the movies is voyeuristic. Yeah. You want to, it's like a, a soap opera, but a, the new episode only comes out every seven years. Right. And you want to know what happened to the, oh, right, him. Did he actually get the divorce or not? Because Apted continued to check in with these kids every seven years. Um, in 1970, they're all kind of surly teens right. and he gets them all back together. And it's, you know, it's, it's hilarious because you see these little bright eyed kids who just won't shut up about their dreams and hopes and friends and everything. And then cut to, they won't even look at the camera. They're just rolling their eyes. They're openly telling the interviewer they don't want to do this. Um, at seven, they ask one of the kids about girls and he says, I, I don't, it's the Yorkshire kid. I don't want to talk about that. I don't, I don't answer such questions. And they ask him again at 14. And he's like, are you asking me? Because last time I, 
said I don't answer such questions? Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> so they invent this. You start to see the birth of this thing where they will juxtapose clips oh. of a seven-year-old and a 14-year-old, and you realize, oh, there's something there. Oh, so in the second the second film, they actually showed clips of the first what's, film. What's central to the series is that they catch you up. They don't assume you have seen this 1966 documentary, oh. they start this pattern of kind of reintroducing each kid, showing them what they wanted at seven, and then kind of taking you through their lives up to this point. And that continues up until the most recent installment, 63 Up, which came out in 2019. That would be the seven fort, the ninth installment. And so do they, in 63 Up, do they refer back to all nine prior episodes? Do you see them? The thing would be eight hours long. It has been right. getting longer over time. I think the, I think it now airs over three nights on ITV and is then later repackaged for international theatrical release. So it, it has been getting longer. But um, basically, you see the childhood clips. And then you see a few updates. This guy later moved to Australia. She got married. Um, he's on his second marriage. So it's worth watching all of the films in their original order. If you watch, you know, if you watch any one of them, you will get caught up. Mindy and I just did a big rewatch. And of all of the films. Yeah, starting in 1964. Because you do miss out. Because what you realize is the people, you know, there's vast changes. 7 and 14 is just a huge gulf. And so 14 and 21 again. And after that, it starts to flatten out. Because really, you know, what has a what has a 49-year-old done that a 42-year-old has not? Right. You know, every, and so every seven years, you know, or, or in, in about a year in advance, they'll start to track the kids down again and kind of have to wheedle them into doing this interview again. Many of whom are, many of them are enthusiastic about them. You know, Tony, the boy who wanted to be a jockey, uh, did get to ride a few races. Turned out he couldn't do it. In the seven-year-old, I, in the, maybe in the 14, in 14, in seven plus seven, he says he would, his backup plan is now to drive a cab. And you see him driving a cab. And he's actually, he enjoys this. He loves talking to an audience. He's had some notoriety. He talks, he, he talks about how, um, at one point he gives Buzz Aldrin a ride and another cabbie wants an autograph and he asks Buzz for an autograph. And the cabbie says, no, no, mate, you, because he recognizes him from, you know, as the cheeky cocky oh, lad. Oh, <laughs> so that's good. At some level, these people are, are celebrities. Did anyone have a late in life transformation or so, was everybody set in stone? The thing that shot, the thing that really made the series on the international stage happens in 28 Up, the just the most hopeful and impossibly heartbreakingly bright eyed of the kids, Neil from Liverpool. Um, starts to be a little more muted in, at 14. And by 21, he's squatting in London. And for 28 up, they almost, he had dropped out of college, uh, university and is squatting in London, working at a building site. And at, by 28 up, they couldn't even find him. They finally just track him down, just kind of tramping all over Northern Britain. At one point, he's somewhere in the Hebrides, uh, you know, just living in a camper off public benefits um, obviously dealing with a lot of depression and anxiety. You know, he's still like a, the most eloquent person, and he's wearing this big raincoat. He looks kind of like a, you know, he's like a Russian poet or something. But, but now he's just talking at length about the disappointments of life and how he doesn't really have any hope for how things might be better. And next time you'll probably find me homeless on the streets of London. And it's just amazingly compelling because they intercut this with shots of the kid. Right. And you just think, you know, what does life do to us? What do our, what do our minds and genetic legacies do to us? The funny thing is after he says the thing about how next time you'll find me on the streets of London, they cut to, in 35 up, they cut to him walking in London with a 
pork, kind of an odd pork pie hat on. And you think, oh no, what's good? Because everybody wants to know about poor Neil, what's going to happen to this guy. But he's actually walking to a city council meeting. He's entered politics and is now, um, you know, he's still an odd guy, but he's now he's volunteering for the Christmas panto at his local theater. And he's representing his constituents on the city council. And he's thinking about standing for parliament. So he pulled it off. Yeah. So you see the, the kind of the full range of a, an unexpected trough and an unexpected recovery in this guy. There is some class mobility, although not much. Um, all of the East London kids are, you know, Tony is probably the most. He he used his fame for, you know, his irrepressible personality and his fame from the documentary series to um, to do a little acting work on the side. If you look him up on IMDb, he plays a series of cab drivers. Uh-huh. <laughs> he must be the actor who, who they know will bring his cab, right? Uh, to, to the to the shoot. And then he came out with a with a, a brand of steak sauce or something. I mean, how did he? <laughs> he wants to open a themed pub, and that that doesn't quite take off. But he gets a summer place in Ibiza, and you know he kind of starts to live a middle class lifestyle, right? Um, the other East London, the East London girls do find good jobs, but they're obviously comfortable with their same set from their whole lives. And of course, the posh public school twits um, become posh public school. They all twits? do almost exactly the educational plan oh. and even career plan they outline at seven. This kid that said he was going to go to Oxford and be a barrister went to Oxford, and now he's a barrister. Wow. It's, it really validates a lot of Paul Allman's suspicions about the child when he was seven in early 60s Great Britain. Right. Um, the, the only kid that dropped, a kid dro- drops out permanently. The kids kind of come and go because um, it's not a joy, apparently, to every seven years get tracked down by a documentary crew and have to account for your your life. Bet not. Um, Although I think I would, would enjoy, you enjoy it. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think I would be one of the ones that, that, um, that, enjoy, that would have enjoyed the, at 21 and at 28 being kind of, uh, portrayed as as somewhat destitute, and then at yeah, you're a real life Neil. Yeah, at th- and then at 35, being able to say like, look, look, I'm you know, I survived, I made it. I mean, you, I, I, you went into the arts and politics too more successfully than Neil, but all the, no, he was actually on the on the council. <laughs> no, or, <laughs> well, <laughs> but you're not directing the Christmas pantomime of uh, Aladdin. Or no, whatever. that's true. I mean, I did go into the arts. I think for me, it would be like the introspection that would come with having to check in every seven years and, and justify my existence. Right. And I, that's stuff, that is what I, I mean, that's stuff I like, but that's what I do, right? I do that for a living. Is in, it, yeah. Podcasting is now doing this uh, once a week. Sure. Or in your case, four, four to five times a week. <laughs> <laughs> instead, look, of one, instead of every seven years. You're, you're a cicada that just will not shut up. I've been podcasting for almost what what is it now eight nine years and um, and I do feel like it's a weekly record of exactly what I'm thinking about and doing um, for that entire period and I I mean I'm I, no one could be less interested in going back and looking at it than than I am but I hear from people all the time that that have listened to the whole arc. Uh, they see it as their multiple it, times. It's right? like it's like days of our lives for them. They want to see what happens next. What and, happened to old Mister uh, Mister Jinglestick? And you know, I went through. I I, I um, laid out several years of depression, and you know, I would show up to the show and just be like, nothing, no one, nothing. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. 20 years from now, what, what that all looks like. Yeah. These up series kids are probably the last, you know, they're one of the last generations. I guess Gen X would be the last generation who, who would look askance at this kind of soul bearing for the, on video in public for art. 
Because of course we all do it. To, today we all do it. You know, Instagram is just a, a, a 21 up that you add to every day. But you know, these people are a little old for that. And so they have a conflicted relationship sure. with the series. Um, one of them refers to it as a poison pill that just pops up in her life every seven years that she kind of dreads. The uh, Some kids have dropped out. The only kid that dropped out permanently is one of the upper class kids. And he actually became a successful documentary filmmaker. <laughs> but now he doesn't want anything yeah, to do with he, the He series. does not want to be Interesting. part of how the sausage is made in this documentary. That's weird. Other kids come and go. One kid went away for a long time. Uh, Neil's friend, Peter, went away for decades. And suddenly he's back because he wants to promote his rockabilly band. <laughs> One of the upper class kids re- always managed to say just something awful about, you know, how great Maggie Thatcher was or just if the, if the poor would just try harder. Right. You know, this kid, John, always just finds a terrible thing to say about how the program has misrepresented him, but, but shouldn't the poor just work harder? You know, <laughs> he, he drops out at some point and he only comes back when he needs to promote his um, charitable ambitions in Bulgaria. Right. He's trying he, to rehabilitate himself. Yeah. I guess he, he and his wife both have kind of Balkan stock and he's, he's very involved in, in getting antibiotics to rural Bulgaria now. And he, you know, he's, he's always on the show shilling for donations now. Well, I can imagine if you were on the show and, and the, then the, public consensus was that you were a villain that every yeah. seven years you would, you would want to find a way to, you know, to, to prove that you were a decent person. Unless you're the kind of, unless you relish, nobody in the show really relishes a heel turn the way you might see from a James Holtzauer on Jeopardy. Right. Who just loves the chance to be a, a, pre- a preening pro wrestler type. Right. Nobody on the show has really embraced that. Maybe because they were just all the, the you know, they were all the, smart, talkative kids in class and, right. and they're people pleasers, you know? I mean, that's the hard, I mean, the, one of the hardest things to navigate is if you're a gifted kid and then that gift doesn't, um, doesn't produce, uh, doesn't exceed expectations even, um, how to manage that disappointment, particularly if everyone in the world is watching. If you know, yeah. And the movie comes out and there's a big editorial about like, oh, it's too bad that Betsy's life is such a drag. And that's why, like, that, and that's why Peter quit. Honestly, he, the tabloids, you know, he, he said that the Thatcher era government was the worst Britain had ever had. And of course the sun or whatever, the conservative, the mirror, what's the worst? I don't know. Well, some conservative tabloid just made him into villain of the week back before, you know, you could do that with Twitter. Right. And he was like, he just noped out. But the, uh, the, the thesis of the documentary turns out to be essentially true. You know, the little, the little, innocent, sweetest boy in the world, Bruce, ends up, uh, you know, teaching uh, kids in, you know, at seven, he says he wants to go to parts of the world and teach people who are not civilized to be more or less good. And at 28 up, he's in Bangladesh, uh, like teaching at a little rural school with no clean water. And then he's in East London. He he eventually sells out and becomes kind of a a podgy cricket playing dad at at some well-off uh, private school in sure, his 50s. Sure, it always happens. But you really can see that for the most part, the kids you saw at seven um, are the core of them when not derailed by mental illness, as in Neil's case. So has there has anyone else attempted like a longitudinal series like this? There were some spinoffs in America and Russia. D- different countries have seen the success of 7-Up because what you see when you watch it is just that there's this special effect that cannot be duplicated. Just watching a kid, at, watching film footage juxtaposed between the same person at different ages as if they're talking to themselves as almost as different characters or just flipping around in a diary. It's just a special effect the movies can't do. Uh, and I remember thinking this as a kid watching, looking at bad age makeup in back to the future two or 
Uh, Brando looks all right in The Godfather, right? You know, there, there, there's some age makeup is better than others. But really, you would never, you'd watch a, a Twilight Zone or a Star Trek episode where your heroes age, and really they're just smearing white stuff in their hair. Right. And, you know, the, uh, the best one is, um, is uh, Jackass 2. Uh, <laughs> what happens in Jackass Well, don't you remember? Uh, it, it's like um, the guys in, uh, like, the guys of Jackass and maybe Tony Hawk, like, they put on age makeup, and then they go out, do they look good or do they look like they Eddie look, Murphy and coming to America? No, they look pretty darn good as that's, old people. And then they have, you know, walkers and they're walking down the street, but then they start doing kind of weird skateboard stunts. They kick flips. And, uh, and freaking people out because, you know, it's like granddad You're starts to. see somebody break a hip. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's pretty good stuff. The, uh, you know, I just think of it as, you know, when I think of age makeup, I think of, you know, Dustin Hoffman in some full face mask and little big man. Right. The, the people just looked like mummies. They didn't look like old people. They looked like a, Uncanny new, Valley. a new species. Exactly. And so the fact that you could actually watch people age in real time was something that only these documentaries could do. And people started to attempt it in, uh, in fictional film as well. Um, Francois Truffaut, the great French New Wave director, you know, his most beloved film is kind of an autobiographical thing about his own childhood called The 400 Blows, about yeah. his own rough childhood. He actually checked back in with that actor, Jean-Pierre Layot, again four times and made three other full-length movies and a short subject kind of as this guy aged, checking back in with his fictional alter ego, Antoine Duanel, to to see what he was up to. And it really is that same kind of voyeuristic you know, oh, what's going to happen next? He's in his 20s. You know, I, even though I didn't know this person, it's really a weird thing about how our brains are wired. You know, with your friends, of course, you want to hear the, the hot goss when they call you. But the fact that our brains are so wired that way that we want to know what happens to a stranger we just met, you know, like what's going to happen to this, this kid in seven years? Right. Um, we get very invested in that. It's interesting that uh, of all the original Star Wars characters, um, obviously uh, 3PO still looks great. Fantastic. Looks almost, shinier than ever. Yeah, couldn't couldn't even see the passage of time once he got that red arm fixed. Although he's got some dementia in the new one. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, Carrie Fisher obviously didn't look like herself because she'd had some some facial surgery. Han Solo um didn't seem like himself because Harrison Ford has become such a corny actor. That he just it just felt like he was playing Han Solo. He's just talk show grump and pothead a, Harrison Ford. Yeah, yeah, just like goof, and it just didn't seem like him. But it's Luke who somehow still manages to be a brat at the same time as he's like a weather beaten old, you know, like gnarled root. That's what the Jesuits used to say to Luke back on Tatooine. <laughs> They'd be like, you're, "If you're a brat now." <laughs> Yeah, so the Star Wars and the and the Harry Potter movies, as you mentioned, have become like the real example of kind of seeing people grow up with us. I mean, with the Star Wars, there was a long interregnum where, you know, the prequels obviously didn't have that same kind of thrill. No. But the Harry Potter movies, you watch these kids grow up, and it really is, you think about the movie makers and just the crapshoot of, you know, casting a 10-year-old and just fingers crossed right. that that kid doesn't age weird. Because we've all seen the sitcom where the little cute kid oh. has an awkward adolescence it's, and they, they have to bring in a new Cousin Oliver kind of cuter kid because Rudy Huxtable is, is is not cutting the mustard anymore. It was the problem with the with Roseanne, the TV show Roseanne. They cast that young son who was a terrible actor when he was five and you think like, well, you know, 
but he continued to be a terrible actor <laughs> and, until and, it was And now no, he's not adorable. <laughs> it was totally not not tenable to have him on screen even. So the Harry, like the, the the initial casting feat of the Harry Potter movies was was just brilliant because they knew we're going to be working with these guys for a decade and they, uh, they managed to score 10 out of 10, right? Plausible stars. Yeah, two, I mean like the the lead two are now legitimate leading men and women and and even Ron is kind of comic relief. Um Stuff. The the director who has kind of dipped into this the most in modern film is Richard Linklater, um, kind of an experimental slacker era director from independent film of the early 90s. We all love Dazed and Confused. Who um, didn't love Dazed and Confused? Impossible movie to not like. And that's a kind of movie where, you know, all the, you know, the whole cast became famous freaks and geeks style. Uh, in 1995, he made his movie Before Sunrise, in which young Ethan Hawke and young Julie Delpy meet on a train into Vienna Things kind of shot in real time. I assume you've seen these movies. The movie's kind of shot. It's a real-time conversation between these two star-crossed young lovers. Then they go their separate ways. And uh, much as in the Up series, the real genius move came nine years later where he decided to check in with the characters again. Because that movie, like 7-Up, ends with a kind of a call to action. You know, it's not the executive and the shop steward of the year 2000. It really is like, are these two going to meet again in a year? Right. And what will happen if they do? Did you ever do that? I have never had that. I mean, I've definitely had relationships in my twenties that had that kind of aura of uh, of magic, but it, it never had that kind of one magic night. Maybe I'll see you again thing. Because more than once, have you, I have, have you said, been? "I'll meet you in the train station in Sevilla on this day oh, in two thousand." 25. We've got to do this. So what's your track record? Uh, what's zero, your, zero out of oh zero. Four, oh four. Yeah. I had a, I had a, uh, a woman say like, if I, if I haven't had a kid in 10 years, I'm going to find you and, and, and sure. we'll have a baby. Runaway Bride made that kind of wager acceptable in our culture. Yeah. And that unfortunately did not, or maybe fortunately, fortunately who knows. Fortunately for her, perhaps. She did not, she did not meet me in the train station. Have you ever Sevilla. shown up and been stood up? No. So you're you're the problem. Maybe all these women are showing up. Maybe they're still out there. The problem is, you know, you you say that like, you know, you're there over a pitcher of sangria and you're like this this, you know, 20 years from now, we'll meet again. But like 7 days later I didn't remember the date. <laughs> like what was it? Was it the 14th? Was it the 13th? The notes app having not existed at the time. <laughs> where 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 in the train station? It's a big train station. That's the great thing about now in the cell phone age, everybody's going to everybody's just going to set an alarm for like I had my phone my my um my calendar alarm went off uh, two days ago, informing me that I was now 400,000 hours old. I saw you posted that, 400,000 hours. I had just remembered, apparently, at some point in the last decade to set up a bunch of Google alerts. <laughs> so today, all these, all these uh, young, starry-eyed lovers are actually going to meet up. Right. Because their their phones are going to remind them, hey, this is when you said you were going to be at the top of the Empire State Building. And you should go. They're all going to show up. I mean, I maybe think, we're speaking to descendants of all these <laughs> amazing romantic relationships that yeah. actually happened. My mom and dad didn't, you know, were were separated fifteen years, and then then their phones went off. <laughs> <laughs> so Richard Linklater has been checking in with uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy every nine years again, and collaborated. Fortunately for him, they became stars. Yes, uh, and they they collaborated. They're both very talented writers as well. So they all kind of co-write their own characters and collaborate on on what should have happened to. I'm not going to remember their names, Renee and uh, and uh, Tom. I mean, what a great, fun thing that would be to be able to write the story of your your, of, your fictional self, your fictional who, self, 
who did actually meet again with the girl from Vienna. Linklater was apparently so taken by the effect of, of seeing those movies barely juxtapose past and present. I believe, I feel like Before Sunset does have some clips of Before Sunrise, but just very brief flashes. And of course, you know, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy are aging well enough that it doesn't seem like a special effect. But Linklater was just so taken with this idea of how movies can show you time in a way that that paintings and novels had never been able to, that in 2001, he started a 12-hour movie project where he would follow this kid over his entire adolescence, his whole growing up period. Um, he called it 12 Years, and then when 12 Years a Slave came out, Oof. he had to rename it Boyhood. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, yeah, he just found kind of a promising young kid from Austin, and every year he would check in with this kid and find out what had happened in his life and kind of incorporate that into a screenplay. And he would talk to his parent characters, played by Ethan Hawke again, and... Patricia Arquette, who had, they both had to agree to have no work done because he wanted to have them age in real time up on the screen. And so for 12 years, they would meet in secret and make this secret movie. And this was all fictionalized fact? They were using... He would draw stuff from their lives. Uh Like when Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman got divorced, Ethan Hawke's character in the movie, whose name I can't remember, became a divorced dad. You know, when Ethan started to get... When young... Sorry, not Ethan. When young... um, the actor's name is L.R. Coltrane, I think. Mm-hmm. When young Coltrane got started to get into... Did you call me jo- Coltrane? <laughs> no, I would never call you Coltrane, John, <laughs> on so many levels. Uh, when he starts getting into art and music, suddenly his character Mason becomes a, a, a kind of a gifted artistic kid. I think uh-huh. it's in the movies it's photography, maybe? And I'm not sure if that's what it was in real life. So this was not a project that was appearing in the Hollywood Reporter. This was all under wraps. under the radar. I don't know wow. who's, who's financing this. He I must. Don't know. I think some studio must have thrown him some money. And he, he cast his own daughter as the little sister because she was such a show off. But this is maybe this is going to happen to you as a dad. His daughter at some point was like turned eleven and was like, "I'm not going to be in your dumb movie, dad." And he had to really twist her arm and, you know, take away her iPhone to make her. <laughs> so for, a, for a, the middle of this movie, his daughter kind of disappears. And then she kind of reasserts herself at the end when she comes out of her awkward phase. Right, and when she and, has her rockabilly uh, band to promote. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and when this movie was released as Boyhood in, in whenever that was, 2013 uh, or, or thereabouts, um, you know, it became one of the most acclaimed movies of the year because nobody had seen anything like it. it. To this day, it's the only movie to ever achieve a hundred percent Metacritic rating in its initial release. Is it good in your opinion? Uh, I like boyhood very much, even apart from never having seen this stuff before. I think his casting is very canny. Um, I like the way he, he kind of lets you see the era passing. You know, you hear Col- the movie starts with a Coldplay song cause it's, it's uh, 2001 or whatever. Oh. And then you see the kids kind of get into the Harry Potter books and, you know, you see them talk about, just, you know, whether there should be Star Wars sequels, um, you know, you, you, it's not just you're seeing your adolescence go by, you're kind of seeing the early 2000s go by, right? which is very compelling. Do you think when he got 12 years into it that he, that there was a part of him that said like, I should, we shouldn't put this out now, I should just keep going, make this movie over 25 years? I kind of wonder if he's continued in secret to work with this cast. Right. It seems like at 12 years, it's an award-winning movie. At 25 years, it becomes like a crazy raw vision, like outsider art project. And at 40 years, it becomes like a you built the pyramid. Well, that's kind of, the Up series kind of is building the pyramids. You know, Aptet is still alive and saying he wants to make 84 Up when he's 99. You know, he, he has now lost one of the kids. One of the kids passed away this year, uh, a couple of years ago, and in the latest film. You know, no, this was a just a working class girl who was a librarian and no no obituaries appeared in any of the papers. But 
you know, when her death was featured in the program, you know, suddenly millions of people are appreciating her life right. in a way that the... Someone erected a giant gravestone for her and... There's a, there's a, a plaque is, 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 uh, you know, in, in installed to her honor in her, in her children's library. And, and of course the film crew is there to capture that. And it really is a, kind of a time capsule of her life in a way that, that most people do not get. I think maybe the most devastating thing to consider about a, a project like that would be that no matter what you did... The ending is the same. Well, not that, but that your highest accomplishment will have been to have been one of these people. I uh, think about that a lot, having very early backed into that kind of, no matter what I do, right. I'm still the 29-year-old game show phenom. The one that... Um, the one that uh, that'll be your first line in your obituary, except now you're the 45-year-old game show returning phenom. Right. America's most uh, famous, you know, the smartest boy in America. But it would, again, it would be as if I had to keep going on Jeopardy every seven years as my facilities decline, as my faculties decline, right? And my facilities, maybe sure. if we get kicked out of our house. No, I mean your <laughs> facilities are declining right in front of my eyes. The physically declining, <laughs> you can measure in inches as my facilities decline. Um, and honestly, that kind of awareness of aging is the thing I like about Boyhood. You know that moment. Do, do you like the? Do you know and like the movie Boyhood? I have not seen it. Oh, for for similar again, reasons. similar reasons. Yeah, there's a movie. You know, the Patricia Arquette character at the end is just, uh, you know, see, having realized her son is now leaving the house, she she just breaks down. You know, at, at, at she thought that she thought there would be more. She says the suddenness uh-huh. of how time has passed, even though it's you know the paradox of how it, the days seem so long. But now in hindsight, the years seem so short. I don't and, want and to have this experience. Nothing in her life has prepared her for this. You're about to uh, lose a kid, you're, right? You're going, it's going to happen to you as a parent. You may want to role play it uh, on Netflix <laughs> first. I, I'm just saying. Every night I put her to bed and I'm like, good night, sweetie. Like, this moment will last forever. You don't see the hourglass descending, but uh, but the sand is dropping. Um, the uh, Linklater has now taken this to its maybe absurd Final extent. I've just heard that he's going to be working on a movie adaptation of the Stephen Sondheim musical "Merrily We Roll Along," mm-hmm. which, if you're familiar, if you're a musical nerd, this follows a group of Broadway songwriters from being starry-eyed hopefuls in the 30s and 40s up to them as paunchy, successful movie executives in the 70s, 80s. Um, but the clever conceit of the play is it, it goes backwards. It starts out with them as successful middle-aged people. And then you see how they, and in one case, a very unlikable one. And then you see how they got there as the musical rolls back a decade every act. Basically. So is it a thing where they are they start off with age makeup on and it gets taken away, or is it? The- I mean, on the stage, you can always get away with this kind of thing. Right. The, the audience knows they've sat in a building for two and a half hours. They have no illusion that decades have passed. So with the with the by putting glasses on somebody, you can kind of suggest something. Right, a bald wig. Yeah, why? But give him a bald cap at intermission. Uh, but what's what Linklater is doing is he's shooting the thing backwards. He has started with the end of the movie when they're young, and uh, you know he's shooting that now. And then in in you know five to ten years, he's going to get back together and shoot the middle of the movie. He's going to keep doing this for twenty years plus or whatever it takes until finally he shoots the beginning of the movie. And then he's going to release it in reverse order, and you're going to see actual actors Benjamin buttoning back to their back to their twenties. Well, you hope he doesn't want to change the script somewhere along the line. That's the thing about these movies, you know. If uh, if uh, Emma Watson from the Harry Potter movies 
you know, gets hit right. by a bus or drops out of acting or develops a drug problem or, you know, you're really kind of betting everything on an uncertain future. Even that Richard Linkletter isn't going to die with half of this project finished. Exactly. And it's happened in the Up series. You know, the kids may drop out, uh, you know, somebody, you know, they're they're going to pass away at some point. The director might pass away. It's all uncertain. But that's that's kind of the beauty of it. It's, it's going to be kind of an unfinished symphony. And it's something that... Uh, We've never been able to actually see before a, li- a life in an hour or two. It will really be interesting when futurelings listen to this program, having grown up and lived in a world where everyone's life is documented from birth. Mm-hmm. Because you see now there are plenty of kids that have had a picture, you know, 50 pictures of themselves posted every day by their <laughs> it's not even a novelty doting anymore. parents. So that you really could do a like a fast motion slideshow of them where you saw them grow every centimeter of their of their lives. What do you think the effect of that is on society of people being able to consider their lives that way in hindsight? You know, the are people going to be less self deluded? What What was the original appeal of Snapchat was that kids could communicate with each other and not leave any record. And at first, people our age suspected that it was just because they were sending sex pictures. Mm-hmm. But in fact, when you talk to young people, they're like, we, can we not just talk to each other and not leave and some? And not think about the imprint? Yeah, just leave some some record, some damning record. Like, And when you think about it, when, when I was a kid, I mean, even in my 20s and 30s, I have a... I have a bundle of scented leather or letters and letters. <laughs> I know you have a, a bundle of scented A bundle scented of scented leather, letters, but... but a bundle of scented letters tied with a ribbon. And that's my only record of my communication with half a dozen important people in my life. And can you imagine if 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 you had every email and text that was ever sent to you by everyone? Maybe the sheer volume of it means it's the same as having nothing. But I don't know. Maybe the self-imposed surveillance state just makes us into uh, better people. I mean, maybe in a... Maybe in a semi-Orwellian way, but if you're always thinking about the imprint you leave, maybe you're less likely to indulge in casual cruelty, bad decisions that you know are a bad look. Yeah, but then then what you're doing is curating your life in real time and not living, right? Every morning you wake up and you're like, better put on a good f-. It's like a Black Mirror episode. But what a gift to the future. <laughs> <laughs> I had an awful 80 years. In order to produce this amazing Instagram feed. Of course, no one will ever look at it. When you think about who visits cemeteries, the the answer is a lot of people for a month and then nobody. Who is ever going to watch the record of their grandmother, right? To sit down and say like, okay, I'm going to spend whatever, six months of my life like absorbing every little diary entry of my grandmother well, hopefully they listen to this. Hopefully well, this is... Yeah, but this is hopefully sterling this is, content. This is the art that survives. The thing hopefully. is, my mother has read all of her grandmother's, reread all of the letters she got from her grandmother, looked at all the family Bibles. Like, it is a thing that we're inspired to do. You want people to put in the work, because I want access to my own family history. Yeah. Um, I'm not doing the work to make sure my kids have it, but I should at some point. If you could, if you could sit and read a daily record of the life of your ancestor who carried the rascal beater into that house in Nauvoo, <laughs> uh, you would absolutely. And not even that. Like, I feel like if I just read about a random great great uncle from the 1890s, I bet it would be just as compelling. Right. Um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, futurelings. Well, obviously, they're listening to this program. By definition, everyone you're talking to is listening. Right. 
or f- have fallen asleep at this point. We're, we're, we're over the hour mark. So <laughs> yeah, any, we're well if future links still listen to this podcast to fall asleep at night, this is the part they never get to. Where we, we reveal the secret of the universe at the end of every show. Sorry. 42. Sorry, sleepyheads. <laughs> And that concludes Longitudinal Film, entry 734.PS9010, certificate number 48149, in the Omnibus. Futurelings, we have uh, already said everything there is to say in this episode. We've covered uh, an entire lifetime of human experience. So, uh... I'm not going to bore you with a lot of uh, flim-flam here at the end. Uh, You can find us at Omnibus Project, at Ken Jennings, and at John Roderick, anywhere you care to look. Uh, Please go to theomnibusproject at gmail.com if you want to send us an email um, or your dating profile. Uh, You can go to our Futurelings Facebook page, our Reddit group, uh, also under Futurelings. Please send us mail. Uh, we're doing a, a show now for Patreon donors where we open our mail and talk about some of the addenda people have sent in, uh, some corrections. Uh, argumentative emails go right into the circular file, but, uh, but we, love, we love to hear from... Uh, Is that true? We love to hear from o- folks. Only respectful <laughs> feedback in the addenda. <laughs> uh, you can mail us things at P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington, 98155, including... Scented leathers uh, tied with a ribbon. I'm opening mail right now. Someone has sent you a copy of a Jules Pfeiffer uh, oh, cartoon book love called Tantrum. It, love it, love it, love it. I love Jules Pfeiffer. He's the best. Um, and people have been sending me chick tracts, which I'm oh, very good. relieved to hear. Good, 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 good. Um, I know you. You've wanted that'll uh, be a, the that'll be a collection. future that'll be a future show. Uh, but if you'd like to contribute to the show, we appreciate it very much. Even though Ken is, uh, very famously a, uh, million millionaire. Uh, he does not, <laughs> this is definitely how you inspire. He giving. does not give any of that money to me. First of all, he does not spend any of that money keeping the show going. The game show money goes in the kids college tuition he bank. He hoards that money because the kids have already got plenty of tuition money. Unfortunately, He's- omnibus has to be, Financially viable. He just sits on top of from game shows. his money. So if you send money to or support the show at patreon.com slash on project, Ken and I are working on some kind of some kind of prorated deal where I get all the money in order to No, he's laughing now. I I, I just hope <laughs> I'm opening more mail and this is a um is this the person who sent us the Mothman figurine? I don't know. Is it a it is it a, it looks like a it's, deli tray. It's, it's now it looks like a deli tray on the back, but it's actually a picture of the Mothman in some kind of hexagonal prism, crystal prism, like the Mothman has been trapped in the Phantom Zone here with General Zod. Whoa. This is... Uh, I hope that you enjoy taking that home with you we're, today. We're getting increasingly strange Mothman. I'm starting to think that uh, John, who sends us this stuff, might be the Mothman. Uh, I am the Mothman. Is that right? No. My daughter really enjoyed the Mothman. He he has entered uh, into the the uh, the pantheon of of My Little Ponies and the to Train the Dragons. Yeah, he's like flying around the house all the time now. Is, is he the bad guy of the My Little Ponies? It, I keep thinking that he should be. He's pretty dangerous looking, but she doesn't. She seems to treat him just like all her other babies. Sorry, I interrupted you to take out 
It was oh, no. Hexagonal imprisoned Mothman. No, I don't think any of our listeners believed that you would give me all the money from our Patreon. <laughs> but but we do have we do have expenses and uh, and your support of the show has made it it's uh, possible. It, it's and viable. viable now. Yeah, only yeah. thanks to generous listeners. We appreciate that. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that every moment of it was documented for you so that you can enjoy it. Um, if the catastrophe of fear does not come, we would love that. It's a better ending for, for our longitudinal time capsule. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word to you. We don't yet know if this is a comedy or a tragedy. If Providence allows, we certainly hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs> <laughs>